We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's going on, everybody? Oregon fans, how we doing? How we living? It is Thursday, September 29th, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of your go-to Oregon Ducks podcast, the Ducks Dish podcast. Just in case you're new here, I'm your host, Max Torres, publisher and lead editor of Ducks Digest, covering the Oregon Ducks over on Fan Nation for Sports Illustrated. And man, we got a big episode in store for you guys today. We are going to be previewing previewing number 13 Oregon against the Stanford Cardinal. Before we get into that, quick reminder and favor to ask of you guys, go ahead and like the video, subscribe to my YouTube channel. We are coming to you live over on YouTube, youtube.com slash Oregon Football Max Taurus. Comment, share with other Duck fans. You guys know all the good stuff to do. And if you're here in the live chat, on YouTube, go ahead and uh, throw a comment in the live chat. Ask us a question. We will do our best to get to all the ones that we can. But joining me for this episode of the Ducks Dish Podcast, I got my guy Kevin Borba. He is the publisher of All Cardinal, a newer member to the Fan Nation family covering the Stanford Cardinal. How we doing, man? Thanks for being here. Uh, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. I love the setup and I'm ready to talk some ball. Absolutely, man. Yeah, we we love doing these previews, and, and I'm trying to roll along, get get the pod going out more consistently. Um, and we uh, we always have some some good interaction with these, and I love to to touch base with the Duck fans. Got some some regulars making comments here already. Um, so yeah, let's let's get started. We got some topics that we want to get into today. Uh, I think kind of a cool place to start off this one, Kevin, is the Stanford the history. Stanford, the history of this Oregon versus Stanford rivalry. I think it is one of the better rivalries that the Pac-12 has to offer, uh, even though the football product has been absolutely eviscerated and for good reason, you know, in the past five to 10 years, the the Larry Scott tenure, Pac-12 is off to a pretty good start this year. That's a different conversation, but just wanted to throw this one your way. What, what do you think about the history of this Oregon versus Stanford rivalry and kind of what it means? Yeah, I think this is like a, a non-traditional rivalry, if you will, because it's like you guys have Oregon State, Stanford has Cal. But this game is like the ultimate um, Pac-12 rivalry, if you will, because these two teams, I mean, not as much anymore because obviously Stanford's a little bit on the the down end of things, but this game used to really mean a lot for the Pac-12 landscape. It would mean a lot for even the national landscape. And so it typically was one of when this game was played every year, it was 
like the best of the best of the Pac-12 taking each other on. And so it was always a great game. And then, as you know, these games are always separated by single digits and it usually comes down to a final drive. And so it's just, it's always pay-per-view, if you will. <laughs> yeah, Stanford and Oregon have, have really carried this reputation of must-see TV when mm-hmm. these two teams face off. Uh, this weekend when they face off, it, it might be uh, – I mean, I think it's still going to be a fun game regardless, Kevin, but uh, it's going to be a late kick for us here on the West Coast, 8-10 Pacific, uh, even later for, for those people that are going to be watching, you know, farther east on the on the East Coast. But yeah, just to give you a rundown of some of these previous matchups between Oregon, um, Oregon was ranked third in the country last year when these two teams played in 2021. Stanford won that overtime thriller 31-24. to um, and then the year before that, Oregon was ranked 12th and hosted the Cardinal, a game that Oregon won much more handedly, 35-14. to 14. Um, But yeah, I'm seeing some other scores here, 38-31, 49-7, 52-27, and then 38-36, 26-20. So kind of like what we were talking about, there are some really cool, uh, you know, close games here. I was fortunate enough to be able to go to each Stanford game these past two years. Uh, in 2020, I think it was the first game uh, during the COVID-shortened season. So I was up in the Onsen press box, and they had all the, the the cardboard cutouts for the fans, which was just weird. And then last uh, last year, was able to hit the road um, in my first season on the on the beat with the Ducks Digest, and got to go home and see some family. And man, that was a crazy game last year. Yeah, last year's game was I was actually a production assistant at the Pac-12 Network, and I was assigned to that game, and it was just like a surreal, like last, I think it was like the last five minutes of the game. It was just like everything went wrong for Oregon and Stanford was just all of a sudden hitting deep plays, making great catches. I'm sure you remember the catch um, that Elijah Higgins made um, to, I believe that sent the game to overtime. Um, It was just pure chaos the whole time. And I think that's like the best word to represent (laughs) this matchup and how it's probably going to be this year too, is just pure chaos. (laughs) Yeah, I, that that seems like the perfect word to describe this Oregon Stanford rivalry. Um, probably, I'd say it's the best rivalry in the Pac-12 North, even though you have Oregon and Washington. I don't know because I, I just feel like you get more quality matchups, like more consistently. Uh, I don't know. As I'm saying that, I wonder if I'm maybe. I feel like it's definitely one of the top ones. I don't know if it's the top because I feel like. The thing about the Pac-12 is it fluctuates so much. And so it's like right now it's probably not the top because it's like you have Stanford's kind of on the down end while Oregon's ascending. But like a few years ago when Washington had Jake Browning and like all that, I'm sure Washington, Oregon was more exciting. But oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely one of those top like rivalries in that upper echelon of the Pac-12 for sure. Yeah, especially when, when both teams are just really firing on all cylinders. Like the, the history of this matchup, you know, there's been – uh, numerous games that have been decided by just a kick. Uh, yeah. Stanford's played spoiler to Oregon's national title hopes. Um, they, they've definitely broken Oregon's heart a, a number of times. And, and I remember when I was at the game last year, it was a, it was an interesting deal. I don't know what Stanford's rules are um, as far as when, when you've covered home games during your time as a, as a publisher, but usually the rules are, uh, at least on the road last year, it was, you know, last five minutes of the game, reporters in the press box get to go down to, to field level and kind of see how things play out. And mm-hmm. for me, it was it was still a pretty close game when I was there last year. 
And uh, the Stanford press box is a little claustrophobic, if we're being honest. It's uh, it's very close quarters. You get very friendly with uh, your fellow reporters. No um, air conditioning. <laughs> but yeah, but, but I remember when I was there, I was like, oh, man, like I'm going to make it a point. Like I really want to be able to to go down to the field level because I grew up going to the games uh, on the farm, you know, in the Andrew Luck days, uh, you know, seeing Kevin Hogan, uh, Christian McCaffrey, you know, some of the uh, Richard Sherman uh, earlier. So like, there's definitely been a lot of great players that have come through Stanford, but I remember I was like one of the, I think I might've been straight up the only person that stayed on top of it and ended up going taking the long journey, you know, around the bowl to, to get to field level. And I'm like, Hey, you know, not only do I want to go down here just because of the history I have with Stanford, obviously, but just like, I could see it Stanford. It was one score game. Like it's chaos. And like, I could easily see this happening. Like I wouldn't be surprised if they were able to do it, especially with Oregon's defense last year, Kayvon mm-hmm. Thibodeau got ejected in like the game's most crucial moments last year. So the pass rush wasn't there. They were kind of bend, don't break all of last year. I'm like, yeah. they're not, I mean, I think Stanford could do something here unless Oregon could, could force a turnover. And sure enough, they, they stormed down the field and, and forced it to OT. Right. And we all, we all know, I'm sure you guys know as well as anyone that Anthony Brown is always due for a couple uh, questionable plays that would not go in Oregon's favor. And so uh, I just knew that game, if the game is within do- or single digits at any time, you just know that it's probably going to end in a different manner than what it currently is at that current state and time absolutely so it's it it, it was uh, it was tough to see the game unfold the way it did for for Oregon I think two of the visuals that stand out to me the most from last year's game was such a physical game it's always such a physical game between these two teams I feel like they kind of bring out the best in each other was Noah Sewell like as Stanford was driving down the field like I, I don't know how much you've seen of Noah Sewell but like dude is just a cyborg like a robot like that's kind of how I like to think of him Awesome mm-hmm. kid with a lot of energy, you know, whenever he's around the the press, you know, you see him walking around in the background and just being goofy, but like that dude just leaves every ounce of it on the field. And I remember him seeing him kind of, you know, like not hobbling, but just like so tired and just, you know, you could see the toll that the game was taking on him. Um, and then uh, also after that game, just seeing Mace Funa, he was pretty banged up, just like walking off the field. So th- this one's the, the emotions always run high. Uh, you always see some great matchups. And uh, I mean, if you just look at the past couple of games that Oregon's lost, it's been, you know, critical turnovers or 50-50 jump balls, uh, which has definitely been the mark of the Stanford offense. Yeah. And I think you mentioned it perfectly. The 50-50 jump balls were, is kind of what not only helped Stanford get the game to overtime, but it helped them win the game. Um, but yeah, that game was just that, especially that last drive. You, and you kind of touched on it. It was because obviously that game was sort of back and forth the whole time, but that was like Stanford's perfect drive, if you will. It was like everything went right for them. They Oregon's defense, as you mentioned, was tired without Thibodeau. Um, pass rush wasn't able to get to Tanner McKee, because if you get to Tanner McKee, which I'm sure we'll discuss later, that is kind of the key to shutting down Stanford's offense, is if you could get to Tanner McKee and make him uncomfortable. And they weren't able to do that that whole last drive, and it was just Stanford was running all, all cylinders, and they ended up winning the game. And to be honest – as someone who was like watching all of the Pac-12 last year, I we all thought that that was like the game that Stanford would build off of. We didn't realize that would be the last win in the calendar year for against Power Five teams. We didn't realize that that was going to be their last Power or Power Five win. Yeah, so yeah, I feel like that transitions pretty well into the the next point that I wanted to get to is just kind of 
taking the taking the you know pulse of of this Stanford team, and like you said in your your last point, Stanford's last win against an FBS team came against Oregon. Uh, I know that Stanford's not typically a, a crazy hostile environment to play in on the farm. I think they do have an underrated atmosphere, I will say. Um, but like you know, fans were storming the field on that one. I think uh, at least the student section was going wild, but. I think this brings up a bigger question just as far as where Stanford's at. So right now heading to this game, they're one and two on the year, uh, was able to start the year off with that win over Colgate, not to anyone's surprise, but really drawing a tough hand here, I think, in a number of ways. You have USC uh, coming in with their you know revamped offense and all their portal additions, losing a 41 to 28 game on uh, at home on the farm. And then you have your bye week super early in the season. I right. think that is just a huge challenge that you have to overcome. Yeah. And then you get another ranked team against Washington and you got to go on the road there against one of the best offenses in the PAC 12. So it's, I'm kind of just trying to lay the foundation of like how we got here. But the bigger question, as you can see with the, the ticker is how much faith would you say Stanford has in David Shaw, whether that be from a fan base perspective or maybe, you know, even as an administration, if you had to kind of speculate. Okay. Um, that's a great question. I'm glad you broke it up because I feel like the fans always see things differently than administration does. Um, when you think of it from an administration perspective, the athletic director is attached to the football coach um, in most cases. So whenever an athletic director makes a hire, they always want that person to work out because that's obviously what their job is dependent on. And so um, Dan Landing's, your guys' athletic director is attached to Dan Landing now. So however, however Dan Landing does, that represents how well your athletic director does. And so I think from an administrative perspective, and I also think it's hard when you factor in that David Shaw is the most successful Stanford coach of all time. And I think that might be what buying him, what is buying him time is like a little too much reminiscing, if you will. Um, but from the fan perspective, the fans are basically calling for, they're calling for heads. They're calling for jobs uh, to be replaced. And so I want to say, and you mentioned it, this schedule does Stanford no favors. And so there's really no opportunity for Stanford to kind of build some confidence and maybe be like, you know what, maybe we should give Davis Shaw some more time because I'm calling this stretch and I'm patching it right now. I'm calling it the death row stretch um, because like you mentioned, they play USC, Washington, Oregon. Then after that, they have to play Oregon State, who is basically a top 27 team, if you will. Um, they took USC down to the wire. Then Notre Dame. And then UCLA um, the week after Arizona State. And so they're playing all of the best Pac-12 teams, plus they have to play uh, Washington State and Utah. So they're playing all the best Pac-12 teams in a year where things are uncertain because people were hopeful that the experience that they have on the offense would kind of carry over and generate some success that we're not seeing. And so to circle back to your question of is there faith in David Shaw, I would say there's a little faith but I would say it's dwindling. I think it's we're getting to that point where either David Shaw is going to have to make some staff adjustments or maybe he's not the Stanford coach at the end of, at the end of the year. Um, DraftKings has already labeled him as one of the best coaches for odd. I mean, this isn't really one of the, the odds that you want to be a part of, but it's the odds to be the next coach being fired. Um, and he's been on that list a couple times. And so that's kind of the pulse that I'm getting. The fans are kind of upset and, pushing for someone else. I think they appreciate what he's done because the Stanford fans are reasonable for the most part. They appreciate what he's done, but he has not made the adjustments and changes that they would like to see moving forward. 
Yeah, and I think that there's also a lot of unique challenges that come with being the coach at a school like Stanford. Right. right. Uh, you know, the, the Ivy League of the West Coast, right? You know, the Cal kind of gets thrown into that conversation as well. But yeah. they're, they're just now, I think this last cycle, they're just getting their first batch of early enrollees. Mm-hmm. So that that's, uh, you know, a, an advantage that kind of flies under the radar, I think. You know, I, I love to cover recruiting, especially mm-hmm. when, when you have a school like Oregon that that recruits at the level that they do but just as something as small as that the ability to get more of your players started earlier get adjusted to the college way of life get adjusted to the uh, academic demands at a school like Stanford but I think you also can flip it on the other side uh, of the coin as well especially in the NIL era I think that Stanford's a school that's really poised to succeed and and benefit from the NIL era of recruiting because you have some of the most distinguished alumni um, and you have uh, a school that has really, especially under David Shaw, traditionally sent a lot of guys to the league. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the standard that David Shaw has set at Oregon, especially, or sorry, not at Oregon, at Stanford after Harbaugh was there, the, the norm has been producing top NFL talent, Rose Bowls, Pac-12 titles. So I think it's just been really hard, especially, you know, after getting everyone, every program got affected by COVID in different ways. I'm not saying that that's what got Stanford to this point, but it, it is a it is a complicated situation because he has done a lot for the program and right. uh, has them you know he he helped them reach their peak but things are looking a little bleak so I guess you kind of have to ask yourself how short is that leash? Yeah, and you made a great point because a few things I would like to touch on Stanford, I mean, and this isn't to call out any other schools, but like USC, they were able to take in I believe over twenty transfers. Um, even Oregon, you guys benefited from the transfer portal. Uh, Stanford took in their first transfer in years. And um, Patrick Fields is a safety that transferred from Oklahoma. And so Stanford is at a disadvantage when it comes to recruiting and uh, the transfer portal, new way of life in college football that we see. Because I'm looking at it right now, their acceptance rate um, as an undergrad student at Stanford is 5.2%. <laughs> and when you compare that to Harvard, that Harvard's is 5%. And so Stanford is essentially recruiting not only the smartest people in the country, so that already limits their net that they could brighten their, or like throw their net out to, but it also, you're not taking in a lot of transfers. Um, So you really have to recruit, develop and repeat. And so they've kind of, they've been recruiting, the development hasn't been there. And then, like you said, it's just, it's tough to think about moving on from David Shaw because of what he's done for Stanford. And you know, you've been around the program. It's, sometimes you have to think about what you can do for me instead of what you did do for me. And I think that's where Stanford is finding themselves right now, because if you're going off of what did you do for me, David Shaw was, he should never get fired. If that's what you're, if you're loyal to what he has done, he should never get fired because he brought the program to new heights. He was able to build off of the Harbaugh era, which many people thought would be a decline after. But when you look at what he's doing for me now, Stanford hasn't had a winning season since, I mean, every counting the COVID year, the COVID year, because they went four and two, but prior to that, 2018. And so it's tough. And then COVID year, um, especially in the Bay Area, they weren't allowed to work out. They weren't allowed. They almost canceled the football season altogether. And so it's just Stanford's in like this weird whirlwind of like, what is happening? <laughs> it's like a, a whirlwind of like, what is happening and what do we do? <laughs> yeah, there, there's definitely a lot being thrown at him. Uh, I mean, yeah, especially with the, the unique challenges 
you talked about the, you know, the COVID protocols, which, uh, you know, are kind of obviously in the mirror, the rearview mirror now. Uh, but the tra- the challenges with recruiting are, are interesting, especially specifically with the transfer portal. Um, but I think one thing about David Shaw that's always stood out to me is you kind of hear, it sounds very cliche and it gets thrown around a lot, but the, the whole, our kind of guy, the OKG, I don't know if you've heard about that. Yeah. I, I feel like, cause he doesn't like Stanford's recruited pretty well, but usually they don't, you know, they're not in the upper echelon of the recruiting rankings and right. they don't, they're not typically, if they get a five star, it's either at quarterback or offensive line. That's usually what you'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I, what I bring up is like, I think that they're good at identifying the guys that fit what they want to do the best. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about guys like uh, Michael Wilson, Elijah mm-hmm. Higgins, uh, even more recently, um, John Humphreys at, at wideout. So we'll talk about right. some of those guys. Connor Weddington is like one of my favorite guys to come out of Stanford in a, in a while. Um, the just really, really talented wide receiver. Other so tight I, ends. They, they're good with the tight ends. It's like recruiting Stanford no, or David Shaw knows how to recruit for Stanford. And like, obviously he wouldn't have made it this far. It's just the thing that Stanford appealed to that, or they kind of lost that appeal, I would say. And this is just my opinion um, because they are recruiting well. They have a top, 25 ish class, depending on what site you go off of. Um, it's just when Stanford had Andrew Luck, Kevin Hogan, it was like they were not only an academic monster because they're obviously one of the best academic institutions in the world, but they were also contending in football with their academic requirements. And so now it's they're still recruiting well, obviously, but it's a little more difficult to kind of sell someone when it's like obviously great education that'll never be hard to sell someone but when football is not holding up their end of the deal it could be hard yeah exactly so it's and that's another interesting aspect of recruiting is how much value are recruits putting on in the on-field product versus Mm -hmm. the bigger vision that the head coach has for the program the the track record what they've done previously uh what what can a stanford degree do for me what can the people that i meet at this school do for me there's so many different aspects of it but I think that in today's era with name, image, and likeness, it can get very muddy very quickly um, because, you know, schools are using money different ways or, you know, utilizing NIL different ways. You're playing the NIL game or you're not. And David Shaw has kind of made it evident that they're not playing the NIL game. Like they're not going to recruit someone and be like, you can make this much money here. That's not the Stanford appeal. I don't think it ever will be, at least not with this staff. Um, because they are in the Silicon Valley. So there there are deals to, I'm sure there are deals to be made if that, that was something that someone wanted to do. But right now, NIL is not like the the forefront of Stanford, if you will. Like Oregon has the, you guys got Uncle Phil. Um, you guys got Nike and all that has to offer. USC, as we saw, Jordan Addison was kind of, the rumor allegedly was that he was getting NIL opportunities there that nobody else could offer. And so, it's just not a game that Stanford's playing. Yeah, so we, we we can get to our next point here, but it was interesting to hear that uh, David Shaw talked about that at Pac-12 Media Days, just about, you know, not uh, not what Stanford can do for you right now. I can't remember, I'm paraphrasing it. It was like, not what Stanford can do for you right now, like right when you get here and like mm-hmm. on the topic of NIL, but like what they can do for you, you know, big picture. Um, right. So that's why you kind of only see them, you know, they, they, they have a very, you know, I feel like specific kind of, you know, talent that they like to get, but, uh, but yeah, let's, let's move on to our next topic here. Um, talking about stacking up, we're talking about the 
Oregon offense against the Stanford defense. So, you know, I'll kind of give my my thoughts on Oregon's offense and some of the biggest players that are going to be involved here. And then you can kind of give me your take on, on the Stanford defense. Um, so just to get us started here, I think that uh, the story with Oregon's offense is balance. I think mm-hmm. that that's something that we haven't seen in a while um, at Oregon. It's It's been such a ground and pound team uh, under Mario Cristobal recently uh, in the past couple of years. I think that his his stronghold on the offense and running it, you know, running the hell out of the ball really just left a lot of fans scratching their heads, like kind of wondering who has control of this offense. Cause Joe Moorhead was one of the was, and I would argue still is one of the most heralded play callers, offensive minds in, in football, but it just didn't look like we were seeing that ingenuity, that creativity, the, the, the impact from the tight ends, but it's really just been a 180, Kevin this yeah. year, Bo Nix comes in from Auburn. He has a really rough debut for the ducks against Georgia and it looks like, like he's kind of turned to, it around. Well, not to cut you off, but I feel like we took, and this is someone who doesn't cover Oregon, I feel like we took way too much stock in the Oregon-Georgia game. I think Georgia is, like, playing a whole different level of football than everybody else. And so, like, I think Bo Nix kind of got a, a, a tough draw in that game. <laughs> yeah, no, he absolutely did. And I, and I think a lot of people were saying, like, oh, there's Bo Nix. There's the Bo Nix that we've known from his days at Auburn, uh, where, you know, he was maybe – he was turnover prone. But – uh then he bounces back against Eastern Washington, but that's Eastern Washington. So how much can you really take from that? And then plays a heck of a game against BYU back to back five touchdown performances really knows how to get it done with his legs and his arm. Uh, and then uh, really helped lead this comeback for the ducks against Washington state. So Bo Nix has been the story. Troy Franklin's been the story. Terrence Ferguson has been the story for the tight ends. Uh, all of which are kind of getting involved in, and seeing the field early on here. And then, the, the running game has been fantastic. The offensive line hasn't allowed a sack. So that's kind of where we're at right now. We can get into some more intricacies, some more specifics with Oregon's offense, but that's kind of where the Oregon offense is at. Maybe we can flip it to you and give us a little story on where the defense is at for Stanford. Yeah, and I'll kind of like build off of what the how it matches up because Oregon's offense is like, in terms of what Stanford is struggling with, is or yeah, what Stanford's struggling with, Oregon's offense is like the perfect matchup for Oregon <laughs> ideally for Oregon you would want because Stanford's not generating the pass rush to, pass rush this year which is disappointing because they switched their defense to a 4-3 from the 3-4 and they were hoping to generate more of a pass rush and then they were also hoping that their secondary would be the strong suit of the defense they have all seniors and a grad transfer back there and so you would hope that um you could kind of make up for your deficiencies in rushing the passer and stopping the run but when you can't stop the run and play action passes work really well against you. It makes life difficult for everybody. And I'm sure you saw in the Washington game and the USC game, um, Stanford's defense is prone to giving up big plays. And so a guy like Franklin for you guys, um, Troy Franklin, who's averaging 17 yards per catch, is he he's probably going to have two or three huge catches against Stanford because that's just how it's been going for the Cardinal. And then uh, Bucky Irving is getting hot at the right time. I know you guys kind of had like a – not a running back battle, but there was kind of a debate as to who was going to be the lead back. And that even made its way into the season, but it seems like you guys have found that guy and Stanford hasn't had much success stopping the run. And so it's just all around. It's tough. Stanford will make in-game adjustments. 
But whether those in-game adjustments will be too late is to be seen. Um, they made the in-game adjustments against USC, held them to six points in the second half. Um, same thing with Washington. If you look at, and which this is crazy when you lose by almost 20 points, Michael Penix technically had his worst statistical game of the season against Stanford. So there are certainly things that the Stanford defense is doing well it's just the time that they're doing them at is when they're down 10 or more and so it's a little little late for that you know yeah yeah so it's like okay too too little too late to to be making those adjustments i think that's something as a whole that is a lot different from the uh for oregon this year is is seeing those in-game adjustments because things kind of start the wheels start to fall off last year against utah and they were almost like carbon copies of the same game just two weeks apart yeah. But um, to, to your point about Stanford, I mean, they, they definitely have some some talent there that, that we got to dig into, um, even though the, the pass rush hasn't necessarily been there. I think that they do have some some veteran returners that give you some confidence, you know, reason to believe that they could take that next step and evolve a little bit more. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm looking at guys like Stephen Heron or Heron on, on the edge. I know he's an experienced guy. Um, Aaron Armitage is a you know a guy from New Jersey that I remember covering because Oregon was was in on him. Yeah. Uh, David Bailey, the true freshman edge rusher who has you know shown up in Palo Alto and, and carved out a starting spot. Talked to him last year when when Oregon was kind of putting the pressure on late. And yeah. then uh, in, in the secondary, you got some guys like Caillou Blue Kelly that uh, I think maybe make it look like this is kind of an underachieving defense right now. But anytime you switch schemes, that that's going to make it a little bit challenging as well. Yeah, and the, I mean, we knew this before the season. Uh, Stanford's defensive line was, they had solid rotational pieces, but they had, I believe it was like one or two starts combined between the four of them. And so they were getting a lot of inexperience there. They're going to have to rely on linebackers like Dumani, um, like you mentioned, uh, Heron, who was more experienced, and then Miazon, who I believe went down last game against Washington. And so Stanford has the guys. It's just... The execution's not there when it needs to be. And so, like, against USC, for example, I'm going to keep harping on that because that was the most dramatic execution standpoint I've ever seen. You give up, you're down 21 in the first half, and you're like, this defense is abysmal. And then they hold him to six points in the second half. It's like, okay, where is this defense the whole time? Like, why why do you need to take two and two quarters and a half time to figure out what's going wrong? Like, And so it's like you need – these veteran guys like Caillou Blue Kelly and Patrick Fields, who if you could grad transfer into Stanford, you're obviously very smart. And so they need people to step up and notice these things. And like I mentioned, it's the big play that's killing them. Um, against USC, they gave up a 70-yard play to Jordan Addison against Washington. Um, I forget how to say his name. His last name is Romo Doonsday, I think is how you pronounce it. Yeah, he's yeah. a nice receiver. 65-yard reception after Stanford had just held them to um, – after they had just scored or forced a punt the drive before too. And so it's like, they need to build off momentum. Um, that's going to be the big key that I keep bringing up is Stanford's defense needs to build off momentum and their offense needs to capitalize off the momentum that their defense generates once they make those adjustments. Yeah. And what you were talking about too, you talk about capitalizing. This is a Stanford defense that I believe ranks last in the PAC 12 in turnovers. They're like, um, they're like last in the country too. and <laughs> They have one. <laughs> Yeah, so like that, anytime you can't get those plays that you can really use just to kind of be the spark for your offense or getting them the, the ball back or getting off the field on third down, like that's a whole nother thing. But but what I was going to bring go back to earlier was your point about um, 
about, you know, Stanford not having much of a pass rush and being a perfect matchup for Oregon in this regard. You know, Stanford doesn't have much of a pass rush right now. Right. Oregon hasn't allowed a sack yet. And then the explosive play. The explosive play isn't something entirely new to the Oregon offense. The mm-hmm. explosive play through the air, yeah. that's something we haven't seen yeah. in years. And it's the main reason that Oregon, that Oregon offense is fun to watch again. That's kind of been my talking point. Um, as we've moved through these past couple of weeks, um, but because we the, the the run game has has always been strong for Oregon, um, they're averaging I want to say 200 rushing yards per game. Bucky Irvin leads the way. Noah Whittington comes in to spell him. Jordan James, the true freshman, is that short yardage back. We're still waiting to see uh, if if Byron Carbo is going to be able to go in this game. I talked about it on an earlier episode this week, but just to kind of get into some of the injuries for Oregon. Uh, the notable ones uh, are, are on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, Byron Carwell and Caleb Chapman are both questionable. Um, with Dan Laney more or less saying that they're gonna they're gonna wait to see if, if they can you know do everything they need to in practice, and then once they you know once they're uh, looking comfortable in practice, then they should maybe get the green light. Um, Caleb Chapman's only played in one game, and I think Carwell's at two right now. Uh, he didn't go against uh, Washington State last week, and then Stephen Jones, I'd say, is doubtful. We saw him in a boot and a scooter in that BYU game. Uh, but uh, Dan Lanning didn't want to like tell us anything about Stephen Jones when we talked to him earlier this week. So those are some of the significant injury news updates that we have for Oregon on the offensive side of the ball. Um, I think that they're really just operating at a, a super efficient level. I think that we, we haven't seen them. I, I think the Washington State game, they didn't start super fast, but it feels like this is an offense that's capable of starting fast more so than what we've seen and years past. And then Troy Franklin's been the the big play guy. We had a story over on Ducks Digest yesterday about, you know, Troy Franklin has arrived. Um, he's already basically passing his marks from his true freshman season last year. And uh, man, he's just, he's that guy that Bo Nix feels comfortable just like slinging it downfield to him. But uh, we've seen it with a couple of guys, Chase Coda, Dante Thornton. Um, a lot of guys are getting involved with this Oregon offense. Yeah. And the Oregon, it, I think it's night and day from the Bo Nicks because I'm seeing in the comments here there's a good bow or bad bow and like that that goes all the way back to Bo Wallace uh, at Ole Miss was he was the original good bow bad bow and there would just be games where he'd be electric and then there'd be games where he'd cost you the game and that was Bo Nicks at Auburn and I you guys have not I don't want to say you haven't seen bad bow because Georgia obviously revealed bad bow but I don't think there's a quarterback in the country that's going to look comfortable against that Georgia defense but to just to kind of touch on the improvement that you've been talking about with Bo Nix and the, the Oregon offense, Bo Nix alone has 13 touchdowns by himself. That's how many touchdowns Stanford has as a team. And so, and he's on track to surpass his career high in touchdowns, which I think is 16 or 15. And so Bo Nix is looking like a completely different quarterback under Kenny Dillingham, um, kind of looking like the quarterback we saw his freshman year that Auburn kind of made us all believe was going to be one of the best college quarterbacks. And so, yeah, you guys are just, it's not that you guys were never allergic to the big play. Like you said, it was just never in the run game or it was never in the pass game unless there was Marcus Mariota. And so I think that was like the last quarterback that truly gave um, a threat in the passing game, but your I mean, Herbert game, at times, Herbert at true. times, but, but yeah, he I, I was limited. Cristobal kind of hit Herbert from us. I, I, I feel like the the biggest reason people were so surprised about Herbert was because Cristobal didn't let him unleash like he is in the NFL right now. But that's Mario Cristobal and limiting quarterbacks is a story for a different day. Um, 
But yeah, I think your guys' offense is just on a whole different level. And I think Stanford's catching you guys at like the worst possible time because Oregon is getting hot right now. Like they're, everything is clicking. Um, I think you saw that against Washington State. Like this Oregon team last year down, what was it, against Washington State, down 15, down whatever it was. They, they're collapsing last year. There's no chance they're coming back in that game at all. They're not even making it close. And so I think you're seeing the change in culture, the change in offense, change in mindset to come back against what was looking like a surefire upset. Yeah, and, and I think there's this is a good point that Gerard makes. Well, that, that was one of the things that I was talking about. One of my talking points from last week's game was this is an, we've seen a uh, dimension from Oregon that we haven't seen in years, mm. the ability to come back. Because if they're in a one-score game, you know, maybe a 10-point game, and you got to drive the field, like, I think there was some confidence that they could do that last year, but it was going to be running the ball. It was going to take a lot of time that they didn't have because mm-hmm. clock management wasn't a strength of Mario Cristobal's, as we know. But then now, I'm looking at some of these numbers, Kevin, averaging 495 yards a game of offense, 6.6 yards per play, and then to, to Gerard's comment here, Gerard's a, a, a frequent listener. Good to see you back here. He had a question earlier that I wanted to actually run by you once we talk about the Stanford offense. Uh-huh. But Gerard says, I believe the team has finally gotten into a groove where a quote-unquote bad Bo performance isn't a guaranteed loss. For example, if Bo is below Oregon expectations against Stanford or Colorado, they can still win. And I think that speaks to Kenny Dillingham, which we had in one of the last comments, knowing his strengths and knowing how to play with Bo um, running the show, but also knowing just getting hit, getting the ball to the playmakers, like being able to, what's the, what's a quarterback's best friend other than a good offensive line. It's a good run game, which is exactly what Oregon has. And that's been really helpful to, to set up, you know, the rest of the offense. Yeah. And I, another thing to touch on Bo Nix before we move on, um, his legs are something that I want to see how Stanford's defense reacts to. Um, Caleb Williams is probably one of the most dynamic athletes in the country, but there wasn't many times when Stanford played USC that he was purposely looking to run. And I think Oregon, you guys like to use Bo Nix as a runner sometimes. Um, and he'll also, he, he doesn't look to make plays with his legs, but he will. And it seemed like Caleb Williams was like very set on throwing the ball when they played. Um, and Michael Penix wasn't much of a runner either when we when they played too. So I think that could be a whole nother level of like Bo Nix kind of showing his improvement is if if something's not open downfield, will he try to force it or will he make the like uh, play with his legs? And so that's just another testament to his improvement this year because the five touchdown game against BYU, it wasn't four passing touchdowns and one rushing touchdown. I think it was two two passing, three rushing. And so Bo Nix knows when to run, and I think that's a good thing in an improving quarterback. Yeah, I think that definitely speaks to whether or not you're a veteran quarterback, you know, being able to take what the defense gives you, not putting yourself in risky situations, not taking unnecessary hits. That's been a very big topic for me personally in my life as a traumatized San Francisco 49ers fan because Kyle Shanahan wants to run our franchise quarterback in between the tackles for two yards. Um, if, if If there's any chance that Stanford fans are watching this, and you're a Niner fan, you got to check out Grant Cohn. He's uh, he's the publisher of All 49ers and has one of the most entertaining YouTube channels that's out there. Uh, but, yeah, just had to give that that a uh, little side note. So Oregon's offense is firing on all cylinders. Stanford's defense is, is still a work in progress and kind of right. struggling, as Kevin said. So we're going to step away and take a quick break for those of you listening to us on podcast. 
And then when we come back, we're going to hear about the Stanford defense, Stanford offense against Oregon's defense. Don't go anywhere. We got more for you after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Ducks Dish Podcast. I'm your host, Max Torres, talking with all-Cardinal publisher Kevin Borba. We are having a heck of a time here on Thursday, uh, getting close to game day uh, for college football, and then obviously we have NFL football. Um, so let's talk about this next subject, the Oregon defense against the Stanford offense. Um Stanford's offense has, you know, some some proven playmakers that that we hit on a little bit earlier in this show, as does Oregon's defense. Oregon's defense has a pretty veteran and experienced front seven. I think some of the the question marks I've been hit hammering the secondary probably a little bit more than I think I should have these past couple weeks. So, you know, it's important to to be able to own up to, you know, maybe some where you uh, you know, weren't necessarily correct, but Oregon hasn't been the best defending the pass. And they're going to have some some very uh, you know interesting matchups here uh, on the outside against some of Stanford's skill talent. Yeah, I think you Stanford, which this is not even being a homer. Like I, I promise you, I'm not a Stanford fan. <laughs> like I have no like personal reason to like make this up. Stanford has one of the best from from an unbiased standpoint, one of the best receiving cores in the country. They have experience, size, speed. Whether they use them like they're the best receiving core in the country, that's a different discussion because <laughs> they're really not using them like they're the best receiving core in the country. And then, th- as you as we all know, we saw it a couple of days ago. Um, I was one of the people to report it. EJ Smith, uh, the running back for Stanford, is out for the year with an injury that uh, David Shaw wouldn't tell us what it was, and which is kind of interesting, not because we need to know, but there was after the um, USC game, which is when he got injured. Um, there was like optimism that he would be able to come back for the for the Oregon game. And then all of a sudden he was shut down for the year. And so really interested to see if that information ever comes out, what it was. But yeah, I think when you look at the Stanford receivers, they're, Elijah Higgins is one of the fastest people in the country. I think he was clocked at 22 miles per hour in a game last year. Um, uh, Bryson Tremaine, who went down last season with a horrific injury in this game, I believe it was actually um, huge. I remember huge seeing that one. Yeah, that was really sad to see a huge guy. And then Michael Wilson has kind of been the do-it-all guy for them this year. He's kind of been their leading receiver. Um, So, yeah, I really think that – and this is – you'll be able to answer this question that I have for you, Max. Um, 
will Oregon be able to turn Stanford over? Because if you can't turn Stanford over, Stanford will score. They've proven that. It's just they will turn the ball over at the one-yard line if if you force them to. <laughs> yeah, I got I got some of the stats here for Stanford's uh, you know receivers. So hopefully you guys are watching on YouTube. You can see some of that. But, yeah, I think to answer your question, Kevin, I feel like I am growing more confident in Oregon's ability to force turnovers. TriQuest Bridges leads the team with, with two interceptions. Christian Gonzalez, the Colorado cornerback transfer, got his first interception as a duck against Eastern Washington. The pass rush has not been where it needs to be or where fans want it to be, hmm. but it has been steadily improving over these past couple of weeks. Um, I think that the front seven's done a really good job uh, especially against the quarterbacks that they faced. Pretty much all of them have been mobile in some way or another. Um, Stetson Bennett was just getting the ball out super fast. Gunnar Talkington was getting it out pretty fast for Eastern Washington, but they were able to get some sacks. Jaron Hall is one of the more athletic quarterbacks, uh, certainly out West, and they did a good a good job of bottling him up. And then you go against Cameron Ward, who has, I think he's kind of more NFL type mobile, not necessarily a guy that's going to kill you with his legs, but knows how to extend plays and, and move the pocket around make those off-platform throws. But I think that Oregon's going to be able to turn over Stanford um, because they just haven't been doing a good job keeping Tanner McKee upright uh, of late so far this season. Um, and, you know, Washington's a pretty good uh, defense. Uh, you know, got ZTF over there. And I think that their defense has been better than I expected, especially with uh, with Kalen DeBoer and then some of the talent that they've lost in the secondary. But, uh, you know, they're a team that you can be confident is going to have a good defense uh, year to year. And then USC's defense has been getting better as well. I think that's kind of been one of the stories for them. It's we knew their offense was going to be just bananas, but are they going to have a defense to match it? And I think so far it's it's looking like they do. But I know for Stanford, and here's another update that we could kind of try to get from you. They're dealing with some injuries on on that side of the ball. You talked about EJ Smith being out for the rest of the year uh, mm-hmm. when it looked like he might be able to come back. So that was bizarre. But they got a couple injuries along their offensive line that uh, could make it kind of hard for them to uh, keep Tanner McKee upright. Right. And you touched on it perfectly. They, they, were, they were without the starting right tackle last week. And then Walter Rouse, the left tackle, went down during the game, came back, but the it, was, it really didn't make a difference. Um, the Washington pass rush was just unreal. Eight sacks, um, six of them in the first half. Uh, yeah, I think the last – David Shaw's keeping injuries kind of close to the chest this time around. I don't know if that's something that he's purposely doing to not let people know or if they genuinely don't know. But I believe everybody that was listed as injured was questionable um, as of the last time I saw besides EJ Smith. And so we don't have like a – I don't have an update for you in terms of the offensive line. But even then, the offensive line was not protecting McKee. Um, he, they, McKee's been sacked 13 times in the past two games. So – uh, even when they were healthy against USC. Um, and they, they also, I forgot to mention, which I like to give a little shout out to Branson Bragg. Um, he retired from football, uh, one of the Stanford offensive linemen. He was expected to be the starters. Um, he said it was better for his mental health to retire from football. So I would like to give a shout out and say that it's still important in this day and age to recognize that mental health is still a priority and that nothing comes before sports. And I'm sure it was very difficult for him to make that decision. So I just want to give him a little shout out there. But um, yeah, the, the Stanford offense line isn't what it needs to be. Um, I see people in the comments asking about the mesh RPO look that Stanford's running. And I've actually been one of the biggest critics of that offensive scheme right now, because the mesh is all based off of in the RPO that they're running. And this in particular instance is letting plays develop and kind of 
elongating that read. And so you'll saw, you saw it against Washington. You saw it against USC. Tanner McKee is holding the ball for about two or three seconds with the running back before deciding to pull it or not. And when your offensive line is not protecting you as like, like Stanford's offensive line isn't, you don't have time for that play. That play is not working. I, I would want them to scrap that play altogether. I'm, I of the mindset that if you can't protect the quarterback, don't run a play that forces your offensive line to block for longer than three seconds. I, I don't feel like that's a hot take by any means. Um, we saw against Washington um, when they ran quicker plays, that is when they had the biggest, um, the biggest plays. Ben, Benjamin Urasek was, uh, I think it was just like a quick curl route or a quick comeback route. They threw it to him within couple of steps Tanner McKee had the ball out and he is a safety was on him so he's able to break the tackle and make plays after Michael Wilson on a slant play was able to take it for a touchdown and so Stanford's offense needs to capitalize on what's working for them getting the ball out quick and then the running game is going to be interesting as you mentioned EJ's out and Stanford is does not have depth at running back um, by any means um, they go to Casey Falcons who did well against Washington rushed for over 100 yards but after that they have Caleb Robinson and Brendan Barrow who have combined for eight carries so me and Max almost have as many carries as they do, and we haven't we haven't suited up yet. <laughs> exactly, yeah, and I think another thing like that just makes you wonder about this offensive scheme choice. Why are you running an RPO offense that when you don't have a mobile quarterback? That's a great like the RPO is based off of you have the threat of your running backs can take it, your quarterback can pull and run himself, or he's going to throw it. But realistically, it's like your quarterbacks, like Stanford's RPO is essentially is Tanner McKee going to hand it off or is he going to try to throw the ball? There's no, is Tanner McKee going to run? So his, his lack of ability, cause Tanner McKee's and you touch on with Cam Ward and I don't want to keep like getting on Tanner McKee for not being mobile because he's NFL mobile. Um, I think a perfect comparison for him would be like Joe Flacco. Joe Flacco is not putting on the burners by any means, but he can move around in the pocket. Or like Ben Roethlisberger. Yeah, exactly. And so, he can move around in the pocket enough, but if there's no pocket to move around in, then obviously he's going to look his, his ability to be mobile will be on, or his inability to be mobile will be on full display. Yeah. And, and that's like basically, you know, our point is getting at what Brooks is saying here with the comment. The thing is Stanford's quarterback is so immobile. In fact, Stanford as a whole plays to Oregon's strengths. They aren't fast or athletic as Washington state. I mean, I think maybe Washington State was faster, but Stanford's more athletic. When I'm looking at the receivers, like Elijah yeah. Higgins and Michael Wilson, John Humphreys, Bryce. We aren't seeing that this year, though. Is the issue? No, we're not seeing their athleticism used at all. Like when you have someone that could, I'm not even joking. Elijah Higgins clocked at 22 miles per hour. I think it was against UCLA last year, and they ran against USC. They've done. They've had two creative plays this year. I'm keeping track just to kind of like a personal note. Um, two creative plays that have worked. Um, one of them was a handoff to Higgins where he kind of was in a jet sweep motion and just took it. And the other one was a tight end jet sweep, which was a little weird, but it works for 50 yard play. And then against Washington, they try to fake fumble, which I, again, don't run plays that take long time to develop when you have a quarterback that isn't mobile and your offense line can't block. And so these Stanford receivers are very athletic and like they are playmakers. It's just, we're not seeing them used to their strengths. Yeah. Okay. Then that that's a good that's a good way to to put it because I was saying they have those athletic guys, but you're saying you know from what you're seeing that they're they're not being utilized like like they usually are. So definitely some some head scratching decisions. It seems like uh, looking at uh, what Stanford has been able to do offensively so far. A couple other things for Oregon defensively. They're going to be without DJ Johnson, their leading pass rusher, sack leader through four games. 
Uh, they're going to be without him in the first half. Uh, I should have finished that sentence before I said that, but they're going to be without him in the first half against Stanford. Uh, got called for targeting against Washington State, and then he got ejected. And then Lanning was asked that question on Monday, and it was very short and sweet because uh, after the game against Washington State, he was saying, you know, I'm going to be looking for some explanations and kind of seeing what's going on here. Um, I'm excited to, you know, hear the full story. Um, and then he was saying it's been appealed and it's been denied. That's all there was to it. So targeting uh, stuff this year, or it, uh, all these appeals, have, I, I don't think I've seen an appeal overturned yet. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a weird deal because um, because it, it's like a new process, but you're you're not seeing maybe having the intended outcome or effect that you were expecting. Right. Um, and then Oregon, other things, other notes for their defense. Uh, Justin Flo made his return last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he didn't go against uh, BYU. Uh, Landing was saying, like, I think he was one of those guys that they could have pushed him, but it's also early in the season, so you don't really want to push him. And then look at how well Oregon handled that game. Um, yes. So he's back in action. Oregon's still kind of looking for that cornerback, too, that guy that they feel really confident in, uh, you know, opposite of, of Christian Gonzalez. Maybe Triquez Bridges is stepping up as that guy. Haven't seen a ton of Dante Manning. Jaleel Florence has also been in that conversation, um, especially with where we're at in the season schedule right now. We're going to have to see, you know, some important decisions need to be made with these red shirts, you know, four games and you can hold on to it. Or if you play that fifth one, then it's it's gone just like that out of thin air. Yeah. Um, so I feel like we have a pretty good feel of where things are at for, for you know, Oregon defensively and Stanford offensively. Uh, right. And any other notes you kind of wanted to add while we're still on this topic? Yeah, I'll make it a quick one just because I know we've been harping on it a little bit. But it's going to come down to if Oregon could turn Stanford over, they will probably win the game. Um, Stanford has 11 turnovers through three games. That's almost four turnover, or yeah, that's three over three and a half turnovers per game. Um, if you do the math and it's just, if you turn them over because Stanford has turned the ball over in the red zone, I think three or four times. And all of those times it was on a score that would have tied the game or given them the lead. And so timely turnovers will be the difference in this game. And it will be the difference between Stanford's offense exposing the Oregon defense maybe because Oregon's defense has given up some points. I think we both can admit that. And so, yeah, I just think it'll come down to timely turnovers. So if they could, if Stanford could prevent them, they'll have a better chance. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and I think there was this other uh, comment too, just about, uh, you know, uh, Tanner McKee and some of these other guys um, just saying, you know, I, I don't care what people are saying. Like, I, I think Tanner McKee is good, and I, I do too. I like I before the season started. Maybe it's a little bit different now. I had him as I think a top five quarterback in the Pac-12. You know, up, upper half, mm-hmm. um, which is probably reasonable. But it's also like he has to be kept upright to yep. have that impact on the game. And Stanford hasn't been able to protect him, so we just haven't been able to see him shine like we're used to. Yeah. They have him in the RPO offense with the with the mesh which is obviously creating some, some challenges a- as well. Um, Want to try to get some of these comments and questions now. Um, so let's switch up the ticker here. Um, all right. And let me go to these comments because someone was asking about a score prediction, which I think would be interesting. Maybe I could put you on the spot. This one's coming from Christopher. Uh, interesting note from Christopher. I feel like every time he writes my name, he uses two X's. I'm not sure if he doesn't know that I only spell it with one or if he's like max, like, you know, like excitedly asking the question, maybe maybe that's it. I like the excitement part. (laughs) No, I'm here for it. And I appreciate the support from, from Christopher and everybody else who asks us questions, but Christopher asked, Max, what do you think the score prediction will be for this game? 
we have our score prediction story over on Ducks Digest. I have this one as a pretty pretty thorough win for Oregon, pretty solid win. I, I said 45 to 20 Oregon over Stanford with Oregon's efficiency on offense and uh, how their defense is starting to improve. Uh, I think that they could definitely you know win this one pretty soundly. I think the line keeps moving in Oregon's favor uh, of late. Uh, I think when I first wrote the betting odds story, it was like 15 and a half, 16 and a half, yeah, um, 17. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think Oregon could definitely run away with this one, but at the same time, if that defense isn't come ready to play and play disciplined football, I think that Stanford has the playmakers that, that could give Oregon some issues and, and maybe make it closer than it should be. Yeah. I think, I think I'll give a score prediction too. I'm going to give, I'm going to stall a little bit to give myself some time. Um, I think it's going to be, the at the end of the day it's going to be which offense can make less mistakes and that's who's going to win um both of our defense both of the defenses have been iffy at times and so it's going to be whoever can make the less least amount of mistakes um if you're a gambling person in the chat or in the on a on listening on the podcast it's minus 17 um right now currently according to espn's odds um i feel like stanford is probably going to lose i'm not calling for an upset here um but i'm going to go 40 to 28 I think I, somewhere in that range. I feel like based on what I've seen, I think it's going to be close, but there's going to be a costly mistake by Stanford because that has been kind of their MO this year. It's costly mistakes. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, you guys got our, our predictions there. Uh, Kevin saying that he might, it might be a little bit closer than, than I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, what else we got here? We got one from Oregon Ducks fans only with the profile picture of the GOAT, Mark Helfrich. Uh, Troy Franklin, 100 yards receiving over or under. Uh, man, Troy Franklin's on a mission this year so far. Um, and, and I feel like I'm inclined to say over. He's at 20 catches for 339 yards, averaging 16.95 per catch and 84.75 yards per game. Uh, he went over 100 yards, I want to say, in the uh washington state game last year five catches for 137 yards he's clearly the big play receiver for them Mm -hmm. um but the nice thing about this offense with troy franklin is that i don't think he has to catch the ball deep down the field to get a lot of yards i think if he can get the ball in space like this kenny dillingham offense uh you know preaches and, and harps on i think that he'll be able to make some plays down the field uh it was just god it's Watching the Troy Franklin this year, Kevin, compared mm-hmm. to last year's highlights, it's just oh. night and day. I mean, last year's highlights were like a bunch of screens and like quick slants, and just like he was blocking. He was for, for for a guy that has this much talent as a playmaker, right? It's just like it felt criminal. Yeah, I think it, like and you touched on it. He was a blocker. I mean, when I I think I think I actually heard praises of his blocking last year as a freshman too, if I'm not mistaken. When you're a receiver and you're being praised for your blocking, that's how you know you're not getting the ball enough. Um, see Evan Stewart at Texas A&M, um, just another player that's being praised for blocking that should be getting the ball a lot. But to answer this question, um, if I was a betting man, which I may or may not be depending on where I am in the United States, um, I would smash the over for this, over 100 receiving yards um, in the past two games, not counting Colgate because Colgate um, ran the ball like 40 times. Stanford has given up at least 160 yards receiving to one person. So Jordan Asson had 170 or 172, and Roman Doonesday had 160, I believe it was, on the dot. And so, uh, yeah, 161. And so, like I said, Stanford is keen to giving up a big play. Troy Franklin is your big play guy, and I imagine he will surpass 100 yards. (laughs) 
Yeah, and, and I think the cool thing about Oregon is just to see how the other weapons have complemented each other. Like that that pass, the, the like biggest play of the game, other than Troy Franklin's like touchdown at the very end and you know Mace Funa's pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, Troy Franklin's touchdowns, by the way, uh, or touchdown against Washington State, viral on Twitter in Spanish broadcast. I don't know if you saw any of those, yes, but the Spanish but, broadcast has become electric for every but, for everything. <laughs> they, yeah, they're just so exciting. But to, to, to wrap up my point here, like that play at a Bucky Irving on fourth and two. Mm. not only was it an awesome throw from Bo, the way he kind of just threaded it in there with two defenders, mm. but that was, that throw was like 20 yards beyond the sticks. Like they didn't need that many yards, mm. um, but it just shows to, it speaks to the comfort and the confidence that he has. And then hell of a catch by Bucky Irving, who's just been an awesome all around back for Oregon and, and really continues to step up when they need him most. Yeah. It's hard. It's honestly hard for me to like understand how Bucky Irving wasn't the lead back from the get go. Like I just, He's making plays in the passing game. He's making, he, I think I, if I'm not mistaken, isn't he averaging like almost seven yards a a carry? Isn't he, isn't he up there? Uh, Let me see. I have the stats up right now. Bucky Irving is averaging seven yards a carry 66.25 yards per game. Uh, And I just like their usage because him and and Noah Whittington both have 35, 38 carries and they, there's not much drop off. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, Bucky Irving is, he provides a threat that Oregon needs because he can run and he can play, he can make plays in the passing game. And I think that's something that you guys kind of lost in Travis Dye um, when he transferred to USC. And I feel like you found the perfect mixture of someone in Bucky Irving. Yeah, Bucky Irving was one of the most highly sought after players in the transfer portal, whether we're talking running back or, or any position. And that was absolutely huge for, for Carlos Lachlan and the rest of the staff to, to get him. Yeah. Um, we had one other question I wanted to get to. Uh, David asks, how do you guys think Bo and McGee will do? How many picks between the two? <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming we're not talking about seven McGee just with this, the spelling, but maybe just the G for the K because uh, I don't think seven will be throwing too many passes. Um, I think that there's reason to believe this should be a, another clean, uh, a clean game. I shouldn't say another because he threw a pick last game. But a clean game from Bo Nix, uh, just you know, playing at home. Oregon plays their best football at home. Uh, Stanford's pass rush hasn't been too great. Uh, Oregon's wide receivers are playing awesome. Um, but as far as with McGee, I feel like we could see, you know, between the two, I could see two picks uh, between because Oregon's secondary is getting better, and so is that pass rush. And, and we'll have to see if those tackles were able to go for Stanford. Right. Yeah, this is – I'd probably predict – if I was setting odds, I'd go two and a half would be like my number for the combined two of them. Um, I feel like that's a fair number. McKee's thrown um, at least one interception every game. Yeah, he's thrown one, and then he threw two against USC and then one against uh, Washington. Um, I will say, though, I believe uh, – let me do math real quick. Two or three of his interceptions have been off deflections, and so it's kind of been unlucky for McKee. I don't know if you guys saw the interception against Washington, but – he threw it to the running back who happened to be falling down as soon as he threw it. And the ball literally just bounced off the running back and went right into the arms of the defender. And so I would go probably two and a half, three, I'd probably say three interceptions today for the combined two of them. Okay. Yeah, no, there, there you have it from, from Kevin. Um, Kevin, we're starting to wind down a little bit, but we've touched on so many great pieces uh, of this game. What, what, any any kind of final remarks that you just wanted to add that, that maybe you didn't get to touch on or, or that, you know, we're excited about with this game? Yeah, I think ex- exciting-wise, I think this will be like an offensive shootout. 
in a way. Um, it's not going to be like those offense shootouts where Stanford's throwing 90 yard bombs and Oregon answers, but I think Stanford's offense will be able to generate some offense and production. And I think realistically Stanford has a chance to win. It's can they get out of their own way? Can they prevent the big play from Troy Franklin or Bucky Irving or prevent Bo Nix from running? And can they just stop turning the ball over when they, when they have momentum? Um, That's usually when their turnovers happen. So Look out for that. Um, you guys will come back and probably I, – I hope you guys tweet me um, if you see like a something that I'm talking about. Like say Stanford gets a big play on defense, they will probably follow it up with the turnover. That's just how it's been. <laughs> and so just be like, wow, that kid Kevin told me because I did. I did tell you. Um, but, no, I think realistically I said this earlier. I think it's going to come down to whoever's offense can make the least amount of mistakes. I don't have faith in either of these defenses to kind of shut the other offense down. And so it's going to be whoever can make the least amount of mistakes. Yeah, and I, I think to, to talk about the defenses again real quick, like Oregon's run defense has been stout. Like I think it leads it's it either leads or it's number two in the conference right now, mm-hmm. stopping the run. Stanford doesn't have EJ Smith. Casey Filkins looks good, but what, what does it look like after that? You know, they're gonna be able to key in on him. How does the rotation, you know, shake out if the, if they're able to um to, you know, try to get some other guys in there. So I think I, I have confidence in uh in, in both sides of the ball for, for Oregon. Um, I'm, I'm super excited for this game. You know, I'm definitely not happy with how late it is, uh, which yeah. is a bummer. Uh, definitely going to be keeping us up late with, th- with that one, but uh, it should be a good one. You know, Stanford, Oregon's always solid. Uh, should be a good atmosphere at, at Odson. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, fans are, are definitely going to show up, especially with school back in session. All those Oregon students should be there. Yeah, I, I think, like you said, it's going to be a great game. Um, this is like We talked about it in the very first segment. These games are always really entertaining, and so it's worth the the staying up past 8 p.m. Um, Pac-12 after dark, great concept, except for when you have to stay up. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, yeah, I think this will be a great game. Exactly. Well, but before we get out of here, uh, I have a quick favor to ask you guys. Uh, I am planning to record a mailbag podcast potentially today. Uh, maybe tomorrow morning, uh, but I'm sharing my screen here. If you guys want to follow me and ask me a question for the next episode of the Ducks Dish podcast, follow me on mTaurus Sports on Twitter at mTaurus Sports. Uh, here's the tweet. Uh, definitely want to hear your guys' questions. Uh, don't throw it in the chat. Go to this tweet and either quote tweet it or reply for your boy. Uh, would very much appreciate that. Uh, but before we get out of here. Kevin, you know, we're, we're trying to get all of our Stanford content and, and get up to speed on this team. Where can people find more of you and your Stanford coverage if they want it before this game? Yeah, so you could follow me, my personal Twitter, at Kevin underscore uh, two underscores Borba. And then my site's Twitter page is at All Cardinal. And so follow me for Stanford coverage. And then I also like to dive in and cover the Pac-12 as a whole um, as well. So it won't just be strictly Stanford stuff. So if you would like to get maybe a little dose of like coaching rumors at, around Pac-12 and other stuff like that. Follow me and I will have that for you. There you go. There you go. All right. And if you guys want to find more of me, you can follow me on Twitter at mTaurus Sports. If you're here in the live chat, thank you so much for stopping by for today's show or if you're listening, however you're tuned in, I greatly appreciate it. If you're here on YouTube, make sure you smash that like button, smash that subscribe button and share the Ducks Dish podcast. That is the best way to support the show. Really appreciate you guys for being here and talking some ducks, taking some time out of your day to talk ball. Big shout out to Kevin for stopping by. 
We will see you guys in the next episode of the Ducks Dish Podcast, and I hope you have a great rest of the day. Peace. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.